Coming to center, a pass over the line to Gordy Howe. Gordy Howe shoots one. Welcome to Winging It in Motown Radio. I'm back as your host, Jeff Hancock, joined by JJ of the World Series champion Kansas folks and Graham, who sounds like crap because he dialed in on a cell phone differently than we normally do. So apologies for that. But the good news is the beeping in the background should be gone because we finally sent batteries to Graham to replace them in a smoke detector. Gentlemen, how are you? Good. I'm good. Uh, I, I finally have, I think, kicked this cold that I've had for about three weeks. So I'll sound a little bit better than normal. Right on. I am on cloud nine, Jeff. As you know, my long-suffering relationship with the Kansas City Royals has finally paid off, finally come to fruition. Um, The nearly two months in the last two years that I've spent being a baseball fan uh, has culminated in um, my favorite team ever winning the World Series uh, over those, those horrible loser Mets. After eliminating the the team full of fucking goobers, the Toronto Blue Jays. So, yeah, I, I could not be more thrilled. They actually canceled our school for, for our kids for tomorrow on Tuesdays uh, so we could go to the victory parade, although I'm not going. No? Uh, no. Your kids must be really disappointed. I wanted to go and, and Michael Samuelson's not going to be there, so I can't go and give him a thumbs down. Uh, it just wouldn't, wouldn't be worth it, really. Well, just just to clarify, the the Royals World Series drought was shorter than the Tigers' current World Series drought, so suck a fat one. Yeah, that must suck to be a Tigers fan. Ooh, <laughs> uh, but who gives a crap about baseball because it's over and this isn't a Tigers podcast. I think they do one on their own already. Uh, but the Red Wings, they had a week of playing hockey that probably wasn't great to begin with but it ended on a high note on halloween um so i guess i i'm kind of going out of order here because i think we should before we get to to, to updated stuff we should kind of just recap what we saw just just your take on the week you lost to carolina you lost to ottawa which i got to see firsthand which was very disappointing and then you 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 win on halloween just just your, your thoughts going all the way back to the carolina game I'll start. JJ, you go ahead since you're on Club Nine. <laughs> you gotta bring me down, huh? Oh man, the Carolina game was—I uh, was wrong on that. I—I I remember I predicted the last week that the Red Wings would get badly outplayed by Carolina, uh, and then I refused to to guess whether or not they would win. Uh, I don't think they got badly outplayed. They got outplayed, um, but that was a pretty even game right up until uh, Peter Mrazek handed them that first goal and that like super duper. Uh, Dominic Hasek flashback thing going on there. Uh, it, it is what it is. It's, it sucked. I'm just glad we're done with Carolina so we can go back to like other inexplicably bad teams dominating us. I'm looking forward to playing Florida all these these times. They're at least kind of good now, though. Yeah, that's true. And maybe Florida getting better means that uh, that will give them lots of trouble. Um, I'm not holding out hope there. Uh, the Ottawa game on Friday at home, that just... They just couldn't find the net. They they outplayed Ottawa for two periods, and then just I don't know. It it felt like giving up. It was awful. It was Tomas Yurko's worst game of the season by far, um, which is really annoying to see. And they just couldn't get anything going. And then 
I got to uh, to watch the Halloween game on DVR already fairly certain I knew what was going to happen because um, my wife's phone tells her the score of the game and so she told me that she knew what happened and uh, since we've been together all of our lives really I could read her in her face that the Red Wings won so um, I knew it was coming and it was it was satisfying right up until the third period like mini collapse when they decided to let's make it an interesting game late and Graham uh, I also watched the game on DVR however I forgot to turn my alerts off on my phone. I knew what had happened. Um, I think by the time... I didn't watch it until very late because I was out most of the night. Um, so I knew the final score, and I watched it, and it was pretty much just a confirmation of, of what I expected to see, which was that they, they were just better. And then you know, towards the end of the game, score effects kind of kicked in, and they you know, decided to make it just a little bit more interesting than it should have been. But ultimately, it never really felt, even though I knew the score, I mean, cause obviously that makes a huge difference. Even that, it didn't feel like it was totally going to fall apart on them. So, I mean, it was a good way to bounce back. But, I mean, I guess this is that, what, the second week in a row now where, you know, you have a couple of not-so-great games and then follow, uh, have a good Saturday night game and get a good win, and then you go, oh, it'll be a momentum into the following week. But I guess we'll see. Yeah, I kind of feel the same. I mean, it's. I think the expectations going in were against Carolina just don't look terrible, which they they didn't. But they, I don't know. To me, I got the, the Carolina game ended, and I thought they played better, but they they didn't play good. So I don't know. I guess it was a little bit of a moral victory, but not at all because they still didn't play great. And then the first Ottawa game, it's like DJ said, they, they played well for two periods, and then in a game and they're trailing, and they got like just completely dominated in the third period. It, it, not where they're playing back-to-back or anything, so there should have been no fatigue or anything like that. That was really disappointing. And then, Well, I can say with the, the Carolina game, I, that was my only day of work for the week, and when Mirazik shot it to whoever the hell it was, and they scored. I was like, you know what? Screw it. I got work to do. And I kind of tuned out at that point because I actually had stuff to get done. And the World Series game went to like 14 innings. And I was there at work till like 3.30 in the morning. So it sucked. That whole day, I just kind of forgot. The Ottawa game, I was in the arena at the Joe on Friday night along with Kyle and, and my wife, who she's now 0-3-3 all time. Six of the seven losses I've ever seen in my life have all come with her. Sure, she's she's thrilled about that. Um, she's not going to the stadium series game with us though, so we don't have to worry about that. We learned our lesson at the Winter Classic. Um, that was just it. I was a little, I wasn't drunk, but I was a little intoxicated. So my what I remember from the game is probably a little skewed. But they were just really, really bad, and it was boring. Kyle and I were bored uh, with the actual gameplay on the ice. I mean, their only goal was a five on three, and I, we'll get to this in a second with with Glenn Denning, but. And, and obviously we we're slightly biased and we're joking, but we also serious with the fact that it just seemed like every time Glenn Denning was on the ice, the puck was in the zone, the wings defensive zone. And we were on the end where Howard was for two periods. So we saw a lot of the game when he was on the ice. Um, the Ottawa victory, I was just, I was thrilled with it. It was fun to finally have a game where they're winning and you knew they were going to win. And, you know, I let you guys handle the analytics. But as far as the eye test, they looked good, uh, which is, you know, I'm a big fan of the eye test. You guys know that. But one thing from the weekend that 
just really screamed out loud as something that was quite negative, um, even in in the light of their win, was was Luke Glendening and his usage, and it, it, it's bad the way Blash Hill has been using them. And and JJ, I'm going. Caleb had a great article on on the website today. I want you to just kind of get in a little more depth and just. For the listeners who may have not read the article, just kind of explain exactly Glenn Denning's, the issue with Glenn Denning. All right. Um, well, if you haven't read the article, you should go do that because it's, it's a really good piece. But essentially, Glenn Denning is being used as the sacrificial lamb. You know, he wants to, Blashill talked about wanting to put him back up against top line units. And so he played against uh, Kyle Turris's line all weekend, which... It, it's sad to think about, but yes, Kyle Turris is Ottawa's uh, top center, and um, he didn't do as badly in Friday's game. At even strength, Ottawa attempted 40 total shot attempts, uh, and Glenn Denning was on for nine of those, so that's about his fair share, uh, considering how the even how the ice time shook out. Um, but on Saturday, and that's the one that the article is really talking about, it's it was that he was on for 32 attempts against and Ottawa only had 59 the entire game. So like more than half, almost like 60% or 75% um, of all of Ottawa's attempts came with Luke Lindenning on the ice against. And that is just brutal usage is is what uh what the argument is and that he's glendening is essentially um a black hole in which all of his teammates um go to to disappear under the avalanche of, of shot attempts against um honestly I'll, I'll tell you i i had a long conversation with caleb in our uh, our private elitist chat room that hopefully is is going to see the light of day he's, he's supposed to be putting that together where I make the argument, and actually I'm probably the the contrarian of the group here as far as that usage. I think that because Glendening has not been getting that use all season, um, Blashill for the first like nine games played him more in a straight matchup role, uh, top line versus top line, all the way down to Glendening being on the third or fourth line, playing against third and fourth lines, and uh, the Red Wings uh, sucked during that too. I mean, Glendening no matter who you match him up against, is, is apparently destined to lose the, the territorial battle. But it's possible that, and this is the problem with, where analytics fall apart, it is entirely possible, and we haven't found a way to separate it out, that Glendening is better at losing that position battle than your average person, and so he's essentially sacrificing himself for the good of the team. And you can kind of see hints of Saturday's game, because Glendening got cratered. But the Red Wings, um, even with score effects played in, uh, dominated that game. Um, on Friday, they were dominating the first two periods, even with Glendening using that usage. So my problem with it was that once they got up 5-1, to one, that was when Glendening got even more ice time, which I think that if you can get a lead with playing that sacrificial lamb line so that your one line blows it against everybody else and so... It, and your other three lines are supposed to have better competition. If you can get that lead, I would think that it would make more sense to go back to a straight line matchup because that's when Kyle Turris is going to get more ice time. That's when they're going to be taking more chances. And if you want to to really put the skate down on the throat, what you do is you put your skill guys out against those their skill guys who are taking more chances, and you just bury them under all the mistakes that they're going to make because your skill guys are better at doing that than 
Luke Glendening is. So I don't know. It's it's such a weird thing because I want I want to see what works, and it doesn't make sense that like specifically saying okay, this line is going to go out and they are going to get murdered um, is actually a good idea. But there's some evidence to suggest that it might be. Yeah, it's. Uh... I mean, I, I was kind of in and out of that chat and kind of paying attention to that conversation. And it, it on the one hand, that makes sense. Um, the concern that, you, that I have with that is that if they're going to be consistently out possessed, at uh, what point is that going to then translate into goals? And uh, the flip side to that is, and this is the concern I have right now for the Red Wings, they're not getting consistent offense from any of their other lines. So you're running a risk of putting a Glendening line against another team's top line and hoping that they can, even if they're going to get just cratered in shot-wise, uh, that they don't allow any goals. Um, but you're also relying on all your other skill players to score, which you should be. Um, but if they're not scoring and they're not generating shots, and they're, and they're not generating shots as a team right now, um, their ability to score more goals is probably going to be less. And so it, it's, a, it's a risk. And, I mean, it's not like this is the first time that, that Glendening... And I think it, it almost feels like we're picking on him specifically. And before this year, I would have said, hey, you know, it's playing on the fourth line. But, I mean, we saw it when he got moved up to the third line. He was playing with Shannon Helm. That line was awful. So you hate to, to put it all on one player because I, I, there's a lot of other factors that go into it. But I, I think there's definitely a case that in this system, Glenn Benning isn't fitting in. He's not contributing positively. He's not doing anything. Uh, at this point. So um, it, it, it becomes more difficult to justify his place in the lineup if you're going to, if he's going to be just that bad all the time. And I think what happens is for those that actually defend him, I think they still remember one game three years ago when he shut down Sidney Crosby for one game. And it almost seems like he's still living off of that game, which was a great performance, but it was one game at home you know, like nothing I've nothing that you can see from him statistically says that when he plays against the other team's best players, he shuts them down, except maybe plus minus, which is obviously a very awful, horrific stat. The case in point is last year in the playoffs, people thought that Glenn Denning's injury really is what turned around uh, game four when Tyler Johnson got those uh, or scored the goals. They were getting absolutely their faces came in possession-wise. It was that was one of those things where it was only a matter of time before that line actually broke out. Um, so I don't know. Caleb's post, I, I think, said pretty much everything, and it's not even just possession-wise. It's time on ice. I mean, uh, Caleb pointed out in the game against Ottawa, he led all Red Wing forwards in ice time. That and shouldn't ever overall happen. and even strength. Yeah, at both, and it wasn't even. And as somebody actually pointed out in the comments, that wasn't even a case of. You know, in the third period when they had the five-one lead, and you know, and, and that's it. no. After two periods, he was first or second. I don't remember. I don't know. He, was, he was second. I know that Zetterberg had second. thirty more seconds at even strength through two yeah. periods. But I mean, that's that's ridiculous. I mean, you know, regardless of what the score is, it, that shouldn't be happening. So I don't know. It, it, every coach has their their little quirks. We saw it with Babcock last year. I mean, how many times last year did Glenn Denning lead the, the team in even strength ice time for forwards? I mean, it was more than once. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not like it's not like this is a new thing. But it was. I, I thought with Blasio coming in that maybe we would move past that, 
and not have, I don't care if he is going to play against the other team's top lines as long as that there's not scoring happening or not too much of it. But if he's going to be getting 18 minutes a game, 15 of which is at even strength, like I just, I don't know. I won't know what to think at that point about Blashill's usage. Like just trade Glendening to Toronto or something. Yeah, and, and even though I'm playing the devil's advocate, I cannot support the yes let's ever let him lead i lead the team in ice time that's that doesn't make sense to me what i'm worried about though is that the concept of trying to do something else is what the red wings were trying to do for the first nine games of the season and that basically didn't work and so he's going back to doing what they know um because the thing is obviously i would i would prefer that the red wings win the possession battle on all four lines that's what you should do that's what you should try to do Obviously, Glenn Denning is not the kind of guy who's ever going to win the possession battle. So, in a perfect ideal world, um, you call people up that can win the possession battle for the fourth line, and you just roll four lines against their other four lines. I, I think that's a, a good option. Um, but they're not going to do that. They're going to keep Glenn Denning out there. I think that during the regular season, during the 82-game grind, um, if you can keep a little bit of wear and tear off of Zetterberg and even off of Datsuk when he comes back and and off the other guys, and maybe give the the kids Tatar and Nike, who aren't kids, Tatar and Equus aren't kids, but um, give them the the chance to like really build up to where they are truly the dominant pieces. Then by the time that you make the playoffs, if you do make the playoffs, um, then you can switch that up and say, all right, Glendening, thanks a bunch, but now you're you're going to be lucky to play eight minutes a night, if if anything, and it's really lean heavily on on your skill. Like I said, I'm I'm not in in love with the concept, but I'm not um, you know pulling my hair out about it. Well, we know Graham's definitely not pulling his hair out about it. Um, <laughs> I want to kind of switch gears here, talk a little bit about the defense. I'm going to mix a couple different things in here because you know one of the positive takeaways from Saturday's game on Halloween was kind of we finally got Cronwell and Smith together which is something a lot of us at WIM have been clamoring for for a while, especially me. Uh, I thought Erickson played especially well, and he did well with the Kaiser. Might have been his best game in a while. And, the you know, Marchenko was with Kindle on third pair. So, so a couple things here. Obviously, the, at least the top four there played well on Saturday. Mike Green has been skating. Their con had today on MLive that he could be back as early as this weekend. Friday or Saturday, if whatever days it is, Friday or Sunday, I'm not sure. I'm just assuming they play back-to-back. I can look at the schedule. Uh, it's Friday, Sunday, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, so so Green's expected to be back, and then obviously you have Marchenko, who's been playing, you could say, overall better than Smith and Kindle. It, it, you know, is he going to stay once Green's back? Does he become the seventh guy? Where do you slot Green? How do you see the pairs shaking out? Just I, I guess take all of everything I just said into consideration, and and what are the the expectations, or what are you hoping for from the blue line uh, in the upcoming week? Um, assuming Green comes back, personally, uh, I think I'd probably want to sit Kendall, just because of I think that the, it's always I think it's going to come down to Kendall Smith if if fans have their way, because um, that those are the two guys that everybody wants out of the lineup or waived or traded or whatever. Um, I personally think Smith has been pretty good this year. He hasn't been great, but I think consistently he's been a little bit better than Kindle has. Kindle is, he's still just kind of all over the place for me. 
I think what he can bring offensively is great. I think he's just as prone to the the, the defensive lapses and mistakes that Smith gets the the, the blame for, um, but they happen more frequently, at least to me. Um, I would prefer to see Marchenko stay in because I think he's played well enough to earn a spot, um, at least while Quincy's still out. So um, my ideal would be to go uh, keep Cronwall Smith together because I think that pairing works. Um, go to uh, DeKaiser and Marchenko and then go a green Erickson. No, now I bet I said it out loud. I take that all back. <laughs> Mar- <laughs> once you hear once you hear the words come out, you go, wait, no, that's an absolutely terrible idea. Um, Green to Kaiser. Go back to what that pairing is supposed to be, um, and do the uh, Erickson <clears throat> Erickson Marchenko. I so you would be a decent third pairing. You're essentially just swapping out Smith and and Erickson. Yeah, pretty much. Well, yeah, okay, pretty much. Jay- yeah, I, I think that. Uh, yeah, oddly enough, Marchenko for the two of the games this week was playing above Smith and Kindle uh, in the lineup. So when the defense starts to get healthy, I can't see how he doesn't become a victim of being waiver exempt. And that's that's just stupid for me because I think it's clear that he is um, has outplayed both of them. I think that uh, oddly enough, his worst game of the season that I've seen him in was Saturday when he was on the third pair with, with Jakob Kindle, I thought that was his, his least strong game. And that's, that's more to the point where he just looked less impressive than, uh, than he had previously. I think that, uh, in comparing Smith and Kindle, I think that Kindle has a better shot. I think he is slightly better in the offensive zone at creating offense. I think they're about the same level of mistake prone in their own zone. I think that, Brendan Smith is a little bit better uh, defending through the neutral zone. I've, I've really been impressed with him a lot of times this season, stepping up on plays to, to break up uh, zone entries and even the kind of dumping plays before they even happen. He still makes a lot of mistakes. I mean, I'm not thrilled with the guy, but, um, yeah, you put him with Cronwall, and, and it seemed to work out. And it's surprising that it took, you know, Blashill this long to, to figure it out. The two games that he separated Cronwall out are the two games that the defense has noticeably improved. I mean, it's... It's like night and day with how much better they are when you put Cronwall with literally anybody but Erickson. So, uh, yeah, keep Cronwall and Smith together. Um, unless you want to go Cronwall Green when he gets back, I, I wouldn't mind that. Um, I don't know if I would might, if I would put a Smith-Green pairing together, but that might be a lot of fun, honestly. Um, and I, I would, I would do whatever it took, including putting Kindle on freaking waivers to, to keep Marchenko up, because I think he's just that much better. I think he is worth essentially wasting an asset um, for him, and I think that even if not, I mean, you've got Roulette and Jensen are, are just as good. I, I'm just, we gave the we gave the guys a chance for everything to, to kind of work out, and Kindle hasn't been bad, but he has not been better than the guys that, uh, that are younger and, and have a little bit... Uh, more to prove, and I think that Marchenko, literally by the fact that he's a right shot, has has proven a little bit more value in the offensive zone. So, yeah, I'd I'd, I'd keep him. I, uh, I I I don't disagree with you, but it's not going to happen because when right. Quincy eventually does return, Marchenko's going down because that's just how they do things, and that's how they're probably going to continue to do things. Uh, are we all in agreement that once Quincy's back, hopefully? 
you know, you, you're keeping Smith, Cromwell, Green to Kaiser's the thing, and you just put Quincy in there with Erickson and Marchenko in, in Marchenko's spot, and then Kindle's your seventh guy. That's probably what's going to happen. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't. I honestly wouldn't mind seeing him go to what they had before Green got hurt. That actually, I mean, it was only a period, and it was against Calgary, but um, it, that seemed like it was working at least better than any pairing they had before that. Uh, and it still gets Erickson off the top pair, which is really, I mean, really that's the ultimate goal here, assuming that all the, the defensemen are healthy, is keep Jonathan Erickson away from Nicholas Cronwall and off that top pairing. Yeah, because that was Cronwall, Green, DeKaiser, Quincy, and then Erickson Smith on the third pair. And aside from Erickson Smith being a little bit frightening in that first period, I thought that, yeah, I thought that worked well as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I think as long as you've got Erickson blank, third pair, that's, that's better than what they've had for most of the season. So at least, you know, we're, we're railing on Blashill's usage uh, for, for Glenn Denning, but it, it at least seems like he's kind of figured out what he had for the defense pairings was not working, specifically that top pair. Yeah, and it's important to note that what he was doing on, on Saturday was while he had Glenn Denning as the black hole guy, uh, it was consistently Erickson to Kaiser playing behind them, and both of them scored goals in that game. Yeah. Brendan Smith should have had a goal. Nice breakaway chance and yeah, couldn't, couldn't lift it. Uh, we, you know, mentioning Green skating, he has been he has had a skating partner. Uh, his name is Pavel Datsuk. On target to be back in the one to two weeks, you know, mid-November that we kind of expected. Um, obviously good news that there hasn't been any setbacks and he's he took part in battle drills today it sounded like and he's just he's skating with the team and he's doing more than just skating on his own so that's a good thing um we we clearly expect the team to look completely different with Datsuk and this is kind of just looking more ahead than recent things because we're still a few weeks away but you you take Datsuk and you put him in this lineup how did how do you foresee things shaking out i mean do you do you keep the larkin zetterberg applicator or does larkin get replaced by datsuk on that top line you put the two goats with the i guess i wouldn't really call applicator a kid and then larkin gets his own line i mean do you larkin tatar and nyquist or do you put datsuk between tatar and nyquist and you keep larkin on the top line and then everyone else effectively gets bumped down and i mean i guess i haven't even seen anything on richard so if you guys have anything feel free to jump in with that but obviously, at this point, we're all probably in agreement that Richards is your third or even maybe fourth line center when all else, if everyone's healthy. Uh, just, just what do you, you know? Let's roster bait here for a little bit. What are you looking at the forward lines? I, um, I don't know. There's part of me with that because if you, you know you give him a line right away, and then there's part of me who's like, you know what? Put him with Zetterberg and just let him get back into game shape because he hasn't played since the playoffs. So. Um, you know, maybe he'll need a little bit of time. Maybe they need to ease him back in. I, I, my fear is that there's going to be. My fear is that what is that one of two things is going to happen. Either the team is going to just be completely rejuvenated by his return to the lineup, and they start playing the way that we expect them to play, or there's going to be some sort of letdown because they think that he's just going to magically turn the team around and it's, you know, it's going to result in just a, a, a drop-off in play at least a little bit. Um, I don't think the latter is going to happen, but you know, I, it's still a concern. I think ultimately you want him away from Zetterberg 
because it gives you then two lines that are just potent. Um, now, but wasn't the whole point of signing Richards was to put them together? I mean, we've seen recently, I mean, Larkin's been taking a lot of the face-offs, even though Zetter, Zetterberg's been the center. You know, why, you know, why, if the whole plan was to make Richards the second-line center, so Dats would consider big to be together, why, why would you want to split them up then? Or why would you think that they want to? Well, I think Richards was more, I mean, I think it's partially, uh, I don't know, second-line center, but I think he was designed to be the second-line center while Datsuk was out initially. And then you move him down to the third line, and you get that, that depth down the middle. So you get a, a good veteran guy um, who can, he can still produce. I mean, he, he's still capable of doing 40 points a year, you know, in a, depending on the role and who he's playing with. So um, I don't think he was necessarily signed as a, as like in a, an insurance policy to then allow Datsuk and Zetterberg to stay together. Um, because Larkin, Larkin's good, but I still think he, he still obviously needs a lot of work in face-offs. So um, I don't know if he's ready for full-time setter, but I wonder if you could do a third line of Richards, Larkin, and shit, I don't know. I mean, pick another winger. Um, but allow, yeah, Polkinen would be, I mean, Larkin and, or Larkin and Polkinen seem to be working well together. So, um, you know, put them together, whatever. But that, to me, would be a, a pretty decent third line. You can have Larkin almost act as like a almost like as a rover instead of a winger. So basically, let Richards take base offs and then switch them. If that makes any sense, so you can kind of take some of the wear and tear off Richards, allow him to play more of a winger role. But Larkin's um, he doesn't have to take all the base offs. Yeah, I think I'd like to keep um, Datsuk and Zetterberg together to start with. Because I think out of the way the team is made up, what you're going to get if you try to put Datsuk with even the old uh, helm Tatar thing is you're going to get the expectation there and you're going to get the the game plan that's essentially, well, just pass it to Datsuk and he'll take care of everything and it's going to take him a little while to get back up to that. But I think Zetterberg and Abdelkader are a good line to prevent that because I don't think Zetterberg has has ever had that... um, too much deferring to Datsu kind of thing going on. I think that gives you Tatar, Larkin, and Nyquist on the second line, or perhaps even Tatar, Larkin, and Polkin in there um, as a super fast, super speedy, super dangerous that you give only offensive zone starts to, so that if Larkin keeps losing faceoffs, it's not that big a deal. Um, for the third and fourth line, uh, open tryouts between... Riley Shan, Darren Helm, and um, I mean you have Nyquist. And yeah, I mean you know, I wouldn't put Nyquist back at center ever. Sorry, I didn't realize you were talking about center. My yeah. fault for interrupting. Yeah, Nyquist would go on the third line if Polkinen is, is up on the second, or he'd go up on the second while Polkinen plays down on the third. I think that Richard and Polkinen um, is actually a, a pretty good thing because I think Richards has that kind of vision that can find Polkinen in the quiet areas to uh, to rip that slapper like the kind of the reverse situation with the kid and the goat thing. Um, yeah, because I haven't been very impressed with Riley Shea this season. Um, I haven't been very impressed with Brad Richards this season, and I've been moderately impressed with Darren Helm back at center. So you've got three guys for two center positions. Um, Richards is the only one that I think kind of has to play center there. So let Helm and Shea decide which one of those is going to play wing on the third line and which one is going to play center on the fourth line. And then basically you don't have Luke Glendening or, or Anderson 
in a lineup ever. Even though I've been, but who will who will kill the penalties? Yeah, right. Everybody else. Um, that's my entire purpose for keeping Drew Miller. He kills penalties. And let Thomas Jericho kill penalties. What about? He's a grinder now. That's all. What if knows. we're what, what if we're thinking about this all the wrong way? You keep you're keeping Datsuk and Zetterberg together, but they're not with Abdelkader. They're with Larkin. I mean, obviously you don't have that Babcock net front guy in, in Abdelkader there, but fuck it, Babcock's not here. I just swore. I was trying to go a whole podcast without saying the F word. Uh, uh, good damn job. Uh, could that line work? I mean, obviously it could work because they're all talented hockey players, but... It, it could, except then you essentially have three centers on one line, so who's centering the rest uh, of your lineup? Well, you've got Shane, you've got Richards. It was, Richards isn't healthy. You have Shane, you have Helm, you have Glendening, you have Richards. I mean, there you go. Shane with tight Nyquist and Tatar on your second line, and then I guess Ablocators bumped to the third line with Helm or Richards and, and a Polkanen or a Yurko or someone whomever, and then you, you got whatever scraps are left on that fourth line. I, I've said this privately within our, our, our chat, and it's, I have never, ever understood why Babcock last year and Blasio this year has not gone back to uh, Shea and Tatar Yurko, because that line worked as a third line in the in uh, 2014. It was, a, it was a great line. They worked together nicely. It, it, has, it has baffled me that they've never attempted to put that line back together just to see what it can do. It would, be, it would finally be the right fit for Yurko. Um, Tatar and Shane work well together. Uh, I guess, assuming Richards is healthy, you could put him on the second line with Nyquist and Polkinen. And then your fourth line is, who cares? Yeah, see, if you put Dotsuk, Zetterberg, and Larkin all together, then all you're going to do is the other team's coaches are going to put their versions of Luke Glendening to shut that line down. And but Luke Glendening sucks, so it won't work. No, their version of Luke Glendening, which won't suck. Like, Marcus Kruger is the Blackhawks version of Luke Glendening. He's good. Maybe it's... Okay. Well, I mean, if we go with Graham, what Graham's just saying, obviously, then that puts Ablocator on your fourth line, which we probably all know won't happen, so... Yeah, slow him the hell down so you can get him at a decent rate um, this offseason. If anything, it just makes me excited at the depth that this team could potentially have if everybody's healthy, which we know everyone won't be healthy. And it's just kind of like hoping that Blashill puts them all in the right spot. Like, fuck it, you don't need a, a fourth line that... Like, sit Drew Miller, just play four skill lines and just score a bunch of effing goals. Like, let's just do that. Effing basically counts as a swear, Jeff. Does it? Yeah, we all know what you're saying there. Well, well. Speaking of swearing, <laughs> a lot of people swore a lot the past weekend, and I'm sure there were a lot of effins dropped because of a Red Wings prospect who did some really stupid stuff. Uh, his name is Tyler Bertuzzi, and because of his name, it probably got highlighted more than it normally would if it was anyone else. Uh, it took a couple sucker punches at uh, who, who are they? I don't even know who they were playing. That's Barry Kappen of the Marlies. There we go. That's why you're here for the details. And then he slew-footed him, and it was kind of ugly-looking. Just, I want to get your take on that from both you guys before we hand it over to Michelle for the prospects report. Go ahead, Graham. Uh, I mean, it was a bad play. Um, you know, I, I mean, I didn't see the game, so I only saw the, the aftermath. But uh, it was pretty obvious as as Bertuzzi pulled him out of the scrum, um, it was obvious that Kapanen did not want any part of, of any sort of fight. And so the three or four soccer punches to the face, they were, I mean, they were jabs. They, they weren't anything that I thought was was going to hurt him. Um, but 
Bertuzzi in that situation needs to then understand that it, it's just it's not going to happen, and you can try and goad him into a fight. I don't know what the, I don't know what he was trying to do at that point, other than let out some frustration because the Griffins are off to a bad start. But then uh, you get the slew foot at the end uh, where you knock him down, which is a dangerous play. It's a dangerous play during a game. It's a dangerous play in a scrum. Um, I was surprised he only got two. I thought he should have gotten more because to me it was. It wasn't a, a play in the middle of a game. There's, there was time for him to think about what he was doing, and he still did what he did. So um, he, you know, he's, he's got the reputation as an agitator, as kind of a pest, the guy who plays on the edge. Um, this, is so, this is completely over the edge. Um, this is the kind of stuff that makes me wary of him as a Red Wing player because that sort of thing just there's no place for it it's it's not going to help him get to the nhl and it's not going to help the red wings be successful so hopefully he figures that out and realizes that he has to play with controlled emotion not whatever the hell that was yeah if that had been somebody else doing that to a griffins player uh i'd want that guy uh, shaved and abandoned naked in a field in, in manitoba for that because it's just one of those just one of those dirtbag plays he he comes up and he basically just he sucker punches him he slew foots him and slams him to the ground and then he does that like that self-satisfied hair flip thing it's like man screw you you're like every 80s villain ever and i just don't want that anywhere near the team i want um todd nelson and and tyler bertuzzi to get the point that that is just not okay um it's just a is it a dirtbag play I'm I'm gonna agree with Cram a little bit. I didn't think the sucker punches were that bad. I'm not saying they were called for or justified or anything. Again, I didn't see the game; just saw the gif of it or whatever. Uh, maybe that's the uh, quote unquote inner Bruins fan in me that doesn't see that as a a bad idea. Maybe I've watched too many of their games and I'm I've I've gone to the dark side. Uh, the slew foot, no way. It kind of reminded me a little bit, not exactly like when Sean Thornton slew footed what the or was Orpic. Yeah, you know, without the going down and then sucker punching him while he's down on the ice. But that's just it's a very dangerous play. He could have you. We all know what could have happened there. You can't let that happen. I I I was so high on Todd Bertuzzi in, in the pre. Excuse me, uh, Tyler Bertuzzi. Damn it. <laughs> In the preseason and the off season, I mean, I think my, one of my bold predictions was that he'd score two NHL goals this year. That no way that's happening now. I don't see him getting called up, but I, I, it's uncalled for. I'm glad he got suspended. Uh, hopefully, the right people are talking to him in the organization to tell him that he can't do that kind of stuff. Um, but one more person that's going to tell us that he can't do that kind of stuff is Michelle. As I mentioned, she talks about Tyler Bertuzzi in her prospects report. And she also has a bunch to say about Todd Nelson and his system and the Griffins and just what the hell is going on in Grand Rapids. And uh, so here, take it away, Michelle. The Griffins have only played one game since the last podcast, and that was Friday night in a 6-1 loss to the Toronto Marlies that turned into an absolute dumpster fire. The Marlies scored two goals in each period and tallied one power play goal in the first and a power play goal in the third. The Griffins outshot the Marlies 39-34, but Garrick Sparks made some incredible saves, and it just seemed like nothing the Griffins did was going to result in a goal, and everything that could possibly go wrong coming back the other way did. The only goal the Griffins managed to score was a power play goal 18 seconds into 
into the third period when Athanasiu went streaking up the boards through the middle and scored a goal on Sparks. Andy Mealy and Xavier Ouellette picked up the assists. As you can imagine, by the time the third period rolled around and the Marlies had a 4-1 lead, the team started to get really frustrated, especially the Griffins, because they just couldn't seem to get goals. They were throwing things at the net. Anthony Mantha had an amazing game. I counted, I think, four different times when he just power drove himself to the net trying to get a shot off, and just nothing would go in. In this game, they only had one referee instead of two, and then the two linesmen, so they were short and official, and by midway through the third period, things really started to go downhill, and not having enough officials on the ice hurt both teams. Late in the third period, Andreas Athanasi was called for interference that I strongly disagreed with, and so did Andy Mealy, who told the referees as much, and got an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty and was kicked out of the game for saying so. The Marlies scored two more goals after that, with a minute and 15 to go in the period, and the Marlies up 5-1. to one. Things got a little dicey. There was the normal pushing and shoving, and words were said. But the significant thing that happened here is that Tyler Bertuzzi paired off with Kasperi Kapanen. Kapanen didn't really have any interest in actually going with Bertuzzi. Bertuzzi threw a couple punches at him. He was obviously angry and frustrated, and they wrestled around and tussled a little bit until Bertuzzi threw Kapanen down to the ice. Bertuzzi picked up his left leg and essentially kicked Kapanen's legs out from under him, threw him to the ground, and was then satisfied that his point had been made. Now, Bertuzzi and Kapanen essentially danced and twirled around on the ice, exchanging words and shoves and a couple of punches from Bertuzzi for almost 30 seconds before Kapanen went down. Now, most of this time, the referee is standing there. You can see him in the video. He's watching it. He's pointing. He's saying something, but he's not breaking it up. He isn't doing anything to defuse the situation. Now, as I said earlier, there was they were short one official, and I think that's probably part of the reason why he didn't step in, is maybe he was watching elsewhere to try and keep things as under control as possible. But this situation should not have been allowed to escalate. When it's clear that Kapanen didn't want to fight, and the referee stands there pointing and saying, and he's watching it the entire time, but he isn't doing anything to break it up. It never should have gotten to that point. Now, that does not excuse what Bertuzzi does, and I'm not defending it, but it shouldn't have gotten to that point. Tyler Bertuzzi did receive a two-game suspension for what's being called the slew foot. You can watch a gif of what happened in the post on whim and see for yourself what it really looked like. I think a two-game suspension is probably on the lighter side of what he could have gotten, but it's also probably close to being in line with what, what the AHL hands out as far as suspension discipline. I have two immediate thoughts on this. The first was, Jesus Christ, Bertuzzi, what were you doing? You can't do that. What were you thinking? And just watching it, it looked like a frustrated, angry kid who lashed out, and he shouldn't have done that. My second thought is, is that the way this team is going with Todd Nelson behind the bench? I've already talked at great length in the past about how much more emphasis Nelson puts on the tough guys and going out there and scrapping and being a tough guy who's not afraid to get in there and drop the gloves and mix it up and and walk that fine line between having an edge to your game and just being undisciplined or dirty. Zach Nastasiak was sent to Toledo last week. Meanwhile, Colin Campbell's still on the fourth line in the lineup and Eric Tangrady's still playing on the top line. What is this team becoming? I feel like Todd Nelson is trying to make this team something that it's not and it's not bringing out the best in the players. Jeff Blashill brought out the best in the players. He focused on skill and playing the game the right way and not letting the other team get under your skin or dictate what's going on or make you do something stupid. You were in control of you and you focus on playing the game and scoring goals and winning. That's what Jeff Blashill did. It brings out the best in the players. It takes a kid like Tyler Bertuzzi and it focuses on, hey, you've got a lot of skill here. You can really make it. You don't have to be that tough 
guy. You don't have to go out there and drop the gloves, and you don't have to do those things that you did when you started in juniors. Todd Nelson comes in, and all of a sudden, it just feels like this team is falling apart, and something like this is happening. I don't think this would have happened under Jeff Blashill because the coach sets the tone for the entire team. I don't think that you can have a team that does not drive at least a large part of its identity from the coach because if you don't if you don't buy in to the tone and the identity that the coach sets if you don't play the way the coach wants you to what's going to happen probably not going to play and i'm starting to get really really concerned that this team is going to lose so much of its skill and its ability and it's going to be dumbed down into being that blue collar team that goes out there and starts fights and gets in scraps and plays on that edge and you know what happens when you routinely play on the edge sometimes you cross it and that's exactly what happened here with Bertuzzi it's not good and I'm starting to get very concerned and I don't know this team is kind of a mess right now and I don't have any confidence that part of the problem isn't stemming from the top in the coaching even in the dumpster fire of a game that it was there were three players that distinctly stood out to me as having good games as playing the game the way they should have been of just trying to get anything going for their team. The first I already mentioned in Anthony Mantha. Multiple times I saw him with the puck just, the best way I can describe it is just powering his way to the net. He would have defenders hanging off him and he was going with this determination that I haven't seen from him enough. And it's, I mean, it's great to see. It's exactly what he needs to do. So he's got defenders hanging off him, trying to get the puck from him. He takes his left hand off his stick, continues with the puck, just driving to the net and holding the defender off with his left hand. I saw him do that several times. He got a couple really good scoring chances out of it and that's what we need to see more of but Anthony Mantha doing it by himself is not going to be good enough. But on an individual basis it was very encouraging to see that from him because it's exactly what he needs to do. That's the Anthony Mantha that we've kind of been waiting to see over the last year and he's doing it more and more frequently now instead of every once in a while he's starting to get more of that consistency. He's been one of the Griffins' better players through this season so far. The other two players that really stood out to me that I noticed in a good way were Nick Jensen and Xavier Ouellette. It's not a surprise. I've talked about them in just about every game so far this season. Ouellette was taking as many shots as possible. He was trying to get anything going offensively for his team. He and Jensen both were doing that. They were also uh, the best two defensemen out on the ice. But again, if you have two defensemen that are really good, that are really trying to drive the play, it's not good enough. And it seems like it's always the case where there are a couple standout players or a few noticeable players that are doing really good things, but that's not enough. It's got to be the entire team. And I feel like this team is not always on the same page. I think that there's a disconnect. I think that they don't have any identity and they are completely floundering. As a footnote in this game, Dan Cleary did play his first game in a Griffins uniform after taking some time to decide if he was going to report or not. Honestly, I barely noticed him. I saw him out there on the penalty kill once with Louis Marc Aubrey, I think, and that PK unit looked so slow and clunky it wasn't even funny. It was pretty depressing. There's a consequence of Cleary being assigned to Grand Rapids that I haven't talked much about yet, primarily because it isn't affecting the team yet. The AHL has a veteran rule and it states that a team can only dress six veterans and veteran exempt players per game and at least one of those six must be a veteran exempt, so you can't dress six veterans. 
A veteran is a player who has played in 321 or more professional games at the AHL, NHL, or elite European leagues. A veteran exempt player is a player who has played 261 to 320 professional games in the AHL, NHL, or any of the European elite leagues. This isn't impacting the Griffins yet because with Cleary coming down, they have all six dressed. When Tristan Grant is no longer injured and he's back in the lineup, though, there's going to be one veteran or veteran-exempt player that's going to have to sit. Currently, the Griffins have Nathan Pache, Jeff Hogan, Dan Cleary, Tristan Grant, Eric Tangrady, and Joel Recklitz, who are veteran players. Additionally, Andy Mealy and Brian Lashoff are both veteran-exempt players. As you could probably count, that gives them eight veteran and veteran-exempt players on the roster, and only six of those can play in any given game, and one of them has to be a veteran-exempt. With all the chaos going on in the Griffins, right now that definitely isn't at the top of my mind as far as things I'm concerned about but it is something to be aware of in the future with an abysmal 1-6-0 record the Griffins have a measly two points on the season in their seven games and they sit at the bottom of the AHL in points they've only scored 10 goals in seven games and in those seven games they've allowed 24 goals against just to give you a little bit of perspective Tom McCollum has played in four games a total of 184 minutes. He has a .916 save percentage and a 2.93 goals against average. Jared Coro has also played in four games, played a total of 229 minutes, has a .904 save percentage and a 3.13 goals against average. Those two save percentages are not as garbage as you would expect from a team that is bottom of the league. This is just further indication that the Griffins are allowing far too many shots and chances against, and they are not getting offense. Their offense is pretty much non-existent. Existent. Now, you might be able to draw some parallels there to the struggles that the Red Wings are going through, but these two teams, the situations that they're in are worlds apart as far as I'm concerned. With the Red Wings, they're trending up, and you know that the team is better, and I have complete faith and trust in Blashill because I know what he's trying to accomplish, and I know that he will accomplish it. With Nelson, my faith and trust in him is fading at an alarming rate. At the beginning of the season, I was so excited that he was the coach. I thought it was going to be so good based on some of the philosophies that I heard him talk about. I thought this was going to be a great fit for the team. And from day one, it has just been trending downward. And I'm starting to wonder now if he isn't part of the problem. Through seven games, Ryan Spruill, of all people, leads the team in points with five. He has one goal and four assists, and Martin Furk leads the team in goals with two. Two goals through seven games is enough to lead the team. Not surprisingly, Anthony Mantha and Xavier Willett lead the team in shots on goal with 21 apiece. As I mentioned earlier, those were two of the standout players through pretty much every game so far. I don't have a problem with the defensive pairings. You have Nathan Pace and Nick Jensen, Xavier Willett and Robbie Russo, with Marchenko being in Detroit, and Brian Lashoff and Ryan Spruill. But up front, you have a top line of Eric Tangrady, Andy Neely, and Martin Furt. Anthony Mantha, Andreas Athanasiu, and Tyler Bertuzzi are still together. Your third line is now Mitch Callahan, Tomasz Nosek, and Danny Cleary, and a fourth line of Jeff Hogan, Louis-Marc Aubrey, and Colin Campbell. Those lines in that lineup to me do not scream, we're trying to fix the problem. We're still trying to cram Eric Tangrady onto the top line. He's not going to be
be the one that breaks this team out, that gets them going, that fixes things. Yet, Zach Nastasiak was sent to Toledo. Mark Zengerly was a healthy scratch for Danny Cleary to come in. Last year, Zengerly was the seventh top scorer on the Griffins, and he had a great season. Yet, he's the one that you pull out of the lineup. Not a Jeff Hogan, not a Colin Campbell, not an Eric Tangrady. It's chaos. It's mass chaos, and I'm angry, and I'm frustrated, and there's not a goddamn thing I can do about it. There's one final thought I have that isn't quite as frustrating and as infuriating as all of that, but it still has a little bit of a head-scratcher. The Griffins have had a very strange schedule to start the season, playing only seven games in the month of October. Two of them were back-to-backs on the weekend, then they had a Wednesday-Friday game, and then six days off before playing Toronto. They now have six more days off before playing Rockford on November 6th, and then four days off before facing Iowa. That means they've played a total of two games in 18 days. That's an awful lot of time off, so when you lose you have to sit and stew about it, think about it for six days before you get to play a game again. For a team that's trying to not only come out of a funk, but trying to get a new identity with a new coach and coaching staff, that increases the the amount of difficulty that they have, and I know that it hasn't made things easy on them. I usually like to end these segments on a positive note, but I really don't have one to leave you with. I don't know what to do. I'm incredibly frustrated, and most of my frustration goes back to Todd Nelson and the fact that he keeps trying to do things that I don't think are going to fix the problem. I'm just throwing my hands up here and along for the ride because I got nothing. In slightly less depressing prospect news, the Toledo Walleye split their weekend series with the Brampton Beast, winning Friday night 4-1 to and losing on Sunday 5-2. to Merrick Tverden had the game winner on Friday, and he leads all walleye players in points with five, despite playing two fewer games than the rest of the top scorers. Zach Nastasiak also got an assist in his first game down with the Toledo Walleye after being sent down from Grand Rapids. The walleye currently have a 3-2-0-1 record and seven points and sits second in the Northern Division. In OHL news, the Flint Firebirds are on a five-game losing streak, and they're really struggling to win games. I was in Flint on Saturday to watch Billy Sarajarvi play, and despite them picking up the loss against Owen Sound, Villy played a solid game. He's such a smart player and he really anticipates what's going to happen, where the puck's going to be, and he has the skating skill to be able to execute it. I noted five times in the game where he made great defensive plays, whether it be a poke check or coming back on a two-on-one and preventing the other player from getting a shot off. He really does consistently play well. In three games last week, he only had two assists and only had four shots on goal in those three games. Despite a slow week for him and the continued struggles of Flint, he's still first in the OHL among defensemen in scoring, he's eighth in the OHL in assists, and he's tied for team lead in points with forward Will Bitten. Another telling stat is that Sarajarvi is a plus 10 on a team with a negative 8 goal differential. Only six players on the Flint Firebirds have positive plus minus ratings, and the next closest to Sarajarvi's plus 10 is a plus 2. In QMJHL news, Adam Marsh registered one goal in two games last week, and he's currently fifth on his team in points. Evgeny Svechnikov had two points in two of his games last week, and on Sunday he failed to register a point, which ended his six-game point streak in which he had ten points. In the Western Hockey League, defenseman Joe Hicketts had five points in three games, registered 
registering his first goal of the season on Friday night and adding an assist to his tally. He also had three assists on Sunday. He currently leads his team in points, and he's fourth in Western Hockey League defenseman in scoring. Center Dominic Turgeon had five points in four games, registering three points in one game and two in the other. On Friday night, his six-game point streak came to an end, where he had 12 points in those six games. In the USHL, defenseman Pat Hallway has two assists in nine games, and he's been a healthy scratch for two. Chase Pearson has eight points in nine games and is fourth on his team in points. Just for some context, in the USHL, the points leader in the league only has 15 points. In college hockey, over the weekend, Mike McKee in Western Michigan played two games against David Pope and the University of Omaha, Nebraska. McKee finally registered his first two points of the season, getting his first goal on Friday and his first assist on Saturday. David Pope didn't register a point in either game. And here's a couple fun tidbits for you. Of the non-Griffins and Walleye prospects, the Red Wings currently have six kids who are at a point-per-game pace or better. Three defensemen and three centers. Billy Sarge-RV is at a 1.14 points-per-game pace. Joe Hicketts is at a point-per-game pace. And James DeHaas is at a 1.17 points-per-game pace. Centers, Evgeny Svechnikov is at a 1.14 points-per-game pace. Dominic Turgeon is on a point-per-game pace. And Julius Vatalo is on a 1.31 points per game pace. For the European players, the Champions Hockey League resumes its play on Tuesday, November 3rd with the first round of the playoffs. Axel Holmstrom and Schleftia are in, Julius Vatalo and TPS are in, Christopher Ennin and Forlund are in. All three prospects teams will be playing, and thankfully they won't be playing each other in the first round, and they couldn't play each other in the second round either, so we don't have to worry about any rooting conflicts anytime soon. And that's what's going on in the world of Red Wings prospects. Well, thank you, Michelle, as always, for your lovely prospects report. Uh, Now, JJ, I'm going to toss the puck over to you for our reader questions. All right. And in Red Wings fashion, I'm going to fumble that and turn it over. No, I'm kidding. Um, Very first question, uh, a tough one from AkadianE6. What is the maximum number of avocados JJ would be willing to eat to guarantee a Stanley Cup win for the Wings? Uh, Graham, what do you think? Um... One quarter of a teaspoon. That's bold. What about you, Jeff? One. Uh, zero, because JJ is so high on his Royals championship, he doesn't need no Stanley Cup. I just question the existence of a system that would make the Red Wings winning a championship dependent upon me eating any avocados. Like, it would probably take a, an intelligent god to, to force such a thing on me, and I, uh, boy, I'd rather... I'd rather spend eternity in hell than eat an avocado. So, fuck you, angry God, and and you're forcing me to torture myself. So, well, you're a bad fan. Yeah, I really am. <laughs> yeah, I'm the worst. But that's okay because my Royals won the World Series, and uh, your Tigers didn't. Yeah, fuck off. <laughs> okay. Go Pistons, right? Yeah, go, there we go. Go Lions. Ooh, never mind. <laughs> that no, I'm at the I'm at the point one in fifteen in the top overall pick. Sounds good. Fire everybody. Cool. Great. Move on. No, honestly, you guys should stop supporting the Lions. That's. I think you're a bad I, fan if you do support them. I I I was flying on the plane from Detroit to Boston during the London game, and I was on JetBlue, so there's TVs, and you get to, you know I was all like excited to watch the game. I'm like I'm gonna sit on a plane, we'll watch the game. It's gonna be awesome. And then the TVs didn't work on the airplane, and I was tweeting at Blue, JetBlue, thank you, and they're like. They thought I was being sarcastic, and they're like, you get 15 bucks back. I'm like, no, no, I should send you 15 bucks. <laughs> Thank you for breaking the TVs, and it was fuck the Lions. Yeah, I was, I was entertained by that. So Yeah, 
I, I enjoyed that tweet. That was a very good one. Uh, Sprout42 wants to know how soon before we worry about the direction of the Griffins. I know Michelle uh, covered that um, a bit in the prospects report, but that is kind of a thing that they've been, they've got a coach who we thought was like this wonderful players coach, and it turns out that his system is just kind of goony, and they've started one and six with a, even a goofy schedule. Um, what's, uh, what's the concern point there? Like, when do we worry about pulling on any? Not even close. You may not agree, but not even close. Yeah, I I tend not to get too worried about it because the Griffins as a team, to me, is how they do is less important than how very specific members of the Griffins do, Right. i.e. the ones who are going to be Red Wings. So if the team sucks, but the players that we expect to be Red Wings, I'm thinking like the Manthas, AA, so, you know, those types of guys, if they're playing well and the team's just, the team around them just isn't that great, my concern level is probably at a one. And there's concern if we keep seeing incidents like the Bertuzzi thing happening over and over again, then there should be concern because he is a guy that oh, I think we expect to eventually make this Red Wings roster in the future. But, I mean, look at before Blaschel. I mean, would, did the Griffins ever win a championship? Did they ever compete for the playoffs? Not really. So but the Wings still churned out some players from Grand Rapids. So I'm not, I don't really care if the Griffins win or lose. It's fun when they win. It's fun when they're in it. But as long, like Graham said, as long as those players are developing, whatever, I'm more worried about the Red Wings than the Griffins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got to complete that thought too, and I I feel bad for for Griffins fans who really do want to see them win every game. But I would honestly take the Griffins losing every game if it was what's best for the Red Wings. So sorry. Um, what is the best way to defeat Blashill's breakout system? Asks Acharya, the spy. Huh. None of your damn business. <laughs> we know. We're just not going to tell you. Yeah. Um. I mean, the the, the answer is. It's it's how teams have been successful against the Red Wings in the past. Aggressive forecheck. Um, the, the Wings have a defense that they typically have one decent puck mover preparing. Uh, if you can pressure that guy and force them into making a pass that they don't want to make and have to do it quickly, the chances of them turning the ball over uh, are significant. Or the ball, sorry, the the uh, the puck over uh, are significantly greater. And ultimately, that leads to his own time. So, um, you know, the the way to beat the Red Wings and, and is is forecheck them to death. Yeah, I think this is fairly simple. If you're the opposing coach, you just realize when Luke Lindenning's on the ice and score all your goals, then because that's your best opportunity. Yeah, force the defensemen to make uh, breakout passes quickly, and uh, they'll crumble. That's where they fail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vito Lambruski. Uh, asked two questions, but we've already basically touched on the second one. So, just the first one: Who has been the most disappointing Red Wing this season? Oh, ah, Riley Shan is my pick. Glendening, uh, Glendening, everybody you know says it about, but Glendening is what he is. Shan was expected to to take more of a you know continue his progression in his career, um, and he's he's been bad by his own admission, um, and he's been given line mates where he should be. He should be contributing offensively, and he just hasn't been. So he'd be my pick. I'm, and it's not necessarily his fault, but I want to go with Yerko. Again, not his fault because he's not really getting a ton of time, but I just thought he would play well enough that it wouldn't let the coaching staff sit him. Um, he's not quite the dumpster fire, but I just I, I wish he'd shown me a little more 
but he again, he's not getting the time to show a ton. Yeah, that performance on Friday was just shit, and I'm like angry at like that's the I spend so much time defending you, and this is how you repay me, kind of angry. Right. So yeah, I mean you you know that Jeff, you do that with Smith. So oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, I have to go with Graham. I, I think it's Shan. Um, his meteoric rise from uh, Grand Rapids to being like a oh well he's just a he's a two way center that that's going to be more uh, defensive to hey maybe we've got something out of this kid uh, maybe we can count on him to put up forty points or so um, that rise led to the organization thinking well it's okay to get rid of Yarncrock it's okay to get rid of Yanmark because uh, we've got Riley Shea in there um, those are he's got to outplay those two and he, currently he's not so. Uh, that's the measuring stick, and if he can't live up to it, then he's disappointing. Uh, let's see. The four centers, I think we've already answered that. Uh, how long before Blashell abandons using Glenn Denning's lies in the shutdown line? Uh, he just started doing that, so... Till he gets hurt. Yeah, never. It, yeah, that's going to be a while. Um, let's see. Kindler Smith, we kind of talked about that, but uh, let's go ahead and, and just vote on it. Anybody not in favor of Kindle here? No? I'm pro-Smith. Right on. Yeah, I'd actually go Smith. If those are my options. Yeah, and then uh, MC Dangles says something has got to change. That's not a question, though. Uh, is a line like Miller, Andy Ferraro less scrubbish than, say, Miller, Luke Lindening, Anderson? I don't know if that necessarily matters. Um, Equally like, scrubbish. But what should we do with our fourth line? What should our fourth line be right now? We should play, well, I mean, right now, I mean, I'd rather play Ferraro than Anderson just because I feel like he brings a speed element that's a little more than Anderson can bring. Uh, if everyone's healthy, I said this earlier, I won't play the best 12 players and just make it work. Skill, score goals, it's the point of the game. I actually thought that the fourth line of uh, Miller, Anderson, and Yurko was somewhat effective. Which um, is, you know, so think about who's not on that line at that moment. Um I'm a Jap. I mean, you play 12 best forwards. Um, I, I would keep Drew Miller in the lineup because I actually think he's been pretty good this year. Um, but I'd go speed uh, or, or more skill once you have everybody back. So I, I would sit Glenn Denning and Anderson. Well, and, and I mean, if you sit a, uh, if you played the best 12 guys and you sat Miller and let's say you're sitting Anderson and you're sitting Glenn Denning, you know, it's a pipe dream there that all three of those guys are sitting. You you have Shane who already kills penalties. Helm kills penalties. You can put Abdelkader out there on the kill. Larkin should be able to kill penalties. He's a two-way forward, right? He's defensively responsible. Put him on the fucking penalty kill. Datsuk and Zetterberg used to be able to kill penalties. They probably still kill penalties, but, you know, don't tax them with that. So you shouldn't... I I don't want to see those guys in the lineup just because, oh, they can kill penalties. They have other guys that could probably get the job done. Yeah, I'd run uh, Miller, Nosek, and uh, Yurko on the fourth line. Sure, I'd be fine with that. Screw Anderson, screw Glenn Denning. Tired of them. Tired of the Red Wings not winning more games. That was uh, our last question, right? That was our very last question. Well, I'm tired of listening to your guys' voices. So <laughs> we're going to get to near the end of this podcast. We're going to look at the week ahead. I will go towards Sunday. Uh, Tuesday, we are home against Tampa Bay. Friday, on the road against Mike Babcock. And Sunday, at home against the really good Tyler Sagan Dallas Stars. Really good is because their record's really good. Whether you believe they can... They lost Toronto cons- tonight. Did they? Uh, yeah, see, I didn't. I'd, four to one. Wow, Sagan. That's Sagan's fault. Uh, what What are you guys looking forward to? What do you? How do you foresee the week turning out? It's uh, it's so hard to know because I mean Tampa 
has gotten off to a bad start, but they're a good team. Um, so you just who knows? Dallas, uh, Toronto. They should kill Toronto because Toronto sucks. Um, so they should win that one easily. And Dallas is playing really strong hockey. Apparently, from what I'm seeing, it sounded like it was all Reimer um, or a lot of Reimer tonight, which is why they at least were able to win. So um, really optimistic. Though. I'm going to say two and one. We're going to lose one of them. I think they're going to lose to Tampa, uh, and then I think they're going to they're going to do well on the weekend. I think they're going to uh, to beat Tampa again. Um, honestly, they're they're right now. The Red Wings are sixth place in in the Atlantic, but they're three points out of second place with two games in hand on second place Tampa. So, like, things aren't total garbage, even though the Red Wings have been awful in their, um, in this stretch. Um, no, I think Tampa is, like, just one of those teams that Detroit is just going to beat all over the ice during the regular season and call that revenge for the playoffs last year. So, I'll go with that. They're going to lose in Toronto. Um, I'm going to be there at that game. I am 0 for 1. The last time I went to a game in Toronto was also Hall of Fame weekend. Uh, Jonas Gustafson dominated against Detroit. Um, Jason Williams broke his leg, and Dan Cleary scored the lone Red Wings goal. So I'm expecting it to be uh, just as painful because that was like that was the night. Like I, I checked, what? Do what? No, go ahead. Finish it. Oh, I, I checked on like comments from because that was back on the days where I was, I was mostly on Google's corner, and like everybody was complaining that the Red Wings had ruined. Steve Eiserman's uh, Hall of Fame induction with the awful showing against the Leafs. I'm expecting more of the same. Um, Lidstrom and Fedorov's special weekend will be ruined by Detroit's uh, performance on Friday night. I'm going to go super dark on that. And then they will beat Dallas uh, because of Jakob Kindle scoring a hat trick. Yeah, they're going one and two. Uh, the only win is is Toronto. Sorry to disappoint you, JJ. You're wrong there. Uh, they're not going to beat Tampa. They're not going to beat Dallas. Tyler Sagan and Jamie Benner are going to destroy Luke Glendening. So I, uh, I'm going to go a little pessimistic this week. They, they Saturday was great, but until they do that again and again, I'm going to expect more of the same, the, the, the negative we've seen. So I'm, I'm going to go to that dark place and, and feel, get ready for a bad week. I think uh, Jonathan Erickson is going to square off on Jamie Ben, and uh, he's going to make him go down, which Jamie Ben hates to do. <laughs> uh, with that said, do you guys have any final hockey-related thoughts before we say goodbye? Graham, I'm going to start with you. Uh, Brendan Smith is going to score a goal this week. Oh, I like that. And JJ? Uh, that goal will be against the Red Wings. uh i'm i'm gonna say that i i don't know mike green returns and he plays well and he'll score a goal this weekend again toronto he'll be back for that game and jj will cheer for him uh those are some really lame final hockey related thoughts so we should just end this now uh so for jj and for graham and myself this has been winging it in motown radio see you next week winging it (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.